Welcome to Preaching in Season, a series designed to help ministers in their work of reading and preaching the Word. In this episode, Biblical Studies professor Mark Hamilton leads us on a journey through texts that many churches will read on the sixth Sunday in Lent 2022, or Palm Sunday. Thank you for listening. Welcome to this seventh in a series of podcasts on preaching in season, an exploration of the text that the church will read during the season of Lent. This is the sixth Sunday in Lent, or Palm Sunday. On this Sunday, the church will read a number of texts, including Psalm 118, 1 through 2, and 19 through 29, and Luke 19, 28 through 40, which is these are part of what's called the Liturgy of Palms, which many of us are familiar with, the procession with the palms and the children and all the rest. Um, and as part of the Liturgy of the Passion, Isaiah 54 through 9, Psalm 31, 9 through 16, Philippians 2, 5 through 11, and Luke 22, 14 through 23, 56. I'm not going to comment on all of those texts, partly because different parts of the church will use different parts of this assemblage, uh, and also because the Lucan texts especially are extremely familiar uh, and very powerful and beautiful, but uh, they, they don't, I, I don't think I need to spend a lot of time on them today. I do just encourage us to remember that story of the triumphal entry in quotation marks, so to speak, because it is triumphal in one sense. The people who have longed for the coming of the Messiah, who say, who, who call out to the son of David, Hosanna to the son of David, save us, son of David, uh, get a glimpse of the possibilities of their future. But of course, it's all dashed to pieces in a few days, as many of those very same people apparently turn on him and reject him and and cheer as he is executed. So there is a an irony to the triumphal entry. And as long as we remember that, we get a sense of the story that follows. During the following week, of course, much of the church will participate in, in services of Maundy Thursday, uh, which end in silence, a sense that there's there's nothing to say at this point. And of course, Good Friday, in which we remember the horrors of the crucifixion, not just the physical anguish and pain, but the spiritual loss and the alienation from closest friends and all the rest, the whole tangle of horror that is Good Friday, which in a way is a metaphor for human existence or large parts of human existence. And then we'll get to Easter, but that's that's next week. Uh, the first text I would, would consider is Isaiah 50, beginning in verse 9, which, uh, which says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of a teacher, that I may know how to sustain the weary with a word. Morning by morning he wakens, wakens my ear to listen to, as those who are taught. Those of us who are teachers can certainly resonate with this, this image that the, the poem pursues for a little while. This is the, the one who has learned, learned enough to teach others, 
and continues to learn. But it makes this interesting turn in verse 6. I gave my back to those who struck me. In the ancient world, uh, the occasional beating of the student was part of the instructional process. I'm frankly glad we don't do that too much anymore. Uh, but here, it's not the child who's beaten, but the adult. And the learning is not happening in, in a school. It's happening somewhere else in life. We know that because it says they pull out his beard. Well, you don't pull out beards of little children, right? They don't have beards to pull. So we're talking about an adult. And this learner says, I, I did not hide my face from insult. Of course, this text is remembered in association with the Passion Week because Jesus as the ultimate student of the Father and the ultimate teacher of God's ways uh, has to experience suffering as, as we do as well. And those of us who imitate him may experience suffering too. Insult and spitting degradation this person has experienced. And yet, verse 7, that degradation is not turned into into disgrace because God has not forgotten and that even even if human beings forget God will not forget and so this person can speak boldly as a lamenter and this psalm is very reminiscent of psalms of lament as a lamenter can say uh, God is with me and therefore the sense of social isolation and alienation I might feel is limited, thanks be to God. The next text we should consider is, is similar to that in that it's, it's also a lament and it's also an expression that any isolation we may feel from other human beings need not define our entire stance toward life because uh, God is, again, God has not abandoned us. So Psalm 31, 9 through 16, part of this, this reflection on lament be gracious to me, O Lord, I am in distress. My eye wastes away from grief. He's cried himself blind. Uh, my life is spent with sorrow, my years with sighing. And the, the suffering that she experiences, and I say he or she, because we don't know who's singing, uh, the psalmist, and it doesn't matter, it could be any of us, my life is spent with sorrow. It's not an occasional bit of distress I have. Uh, my life is bad, this person says. I am the scorn of my adversaries. You know, the Psalms of Lament usually frame human suffering in one of two ways, or in both of these ways, as physical pain or as social isolation. Here we get the social isolation, the sense that uh, the person is marginalized in some way and in distress. You know, it's interesting how that works even in our own world. Uh, sometimes people feel so much isolation and distress that they, they want to join any cause that promises relief from that, which is why demagogues and dictators often appeal to those who are suffering and promise to relieve suffering even though usually, well, not usually, always, they add to the suffering in the long run. Uh, it's That's one solution, though. We look for an earthly savior who yells at the people we want to yell at. But, of course, these are false messiahs. The real deliverer is God, who 
call and in a psalm like this and many others the psalmist does not call out to god to empower him or her to take revenge calls out to god to sort it out and expresses trust that god will indeed sort it out however it needs to be we try to avoid becoming what we hate which of course is the temptation of those who feel or rightly or wrongly that they've been stepped on by others. So this psalmist says, I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. My times are in your hand. Deliver me from the hands of my enemies and persecutors. Let your face shine upon your servant. The, the, the key verse, I think, is, is verse 13. I hear the whispering of many, terror all around. It's, a, it's very similar to a, a discussion in the 20th chapter of the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah says that his enemies have called him Magor Misaviv, terror in every direction, terror all around. There's old terror all around coming at us because he has kept announcing the, the, the terrible things that are about to fall befall Jerusalem and Judah. And of course, he was right about that. Uh, this psalmist uses very similar language. They call me terror all around. It's, it's almost as though the psalm is written to uh, play out the role of the persecuted prophet, of the one who has told the people of God about their problems. Not, not the aliens, not the enemies, not the pagans, but the people of God, that they're part of the problem and that their sins are causing their problems. And to have the courage to do that uh, is not easy. And the fact that this person has the courage to do that means that he or she must experience certain certain amount of pain. But the good news is, of course, at the end, that when we cry out to God to smile upon us, to turn toward us with affection and welcome, that God is eager to do that. Part of that eagerness is shown in Psalm 118, uh, which I, I will not say much about except to point to uh, the tension between verses 22 and 24. Verse 22 says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a text that gets quoted in Mark 12, 10, Matthew 21, 42, Luke 20:17 and 1 Peter 2:7 just in case you're keeping track and in those places is used to refer to Jesus as the the stone that that the builders thought was useless turns out to be the most useful uh, but there's a tension in the psalm itself between that line and verse 24, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. It's hard to rejoice in being rejected. Uh, even when at the end things come right. But this is not a Horatio Alger story. Poor boy makes good. Because Jesus is not the poor boy who makes good. Not at all. Jesus is the Son of God who becomes poor in order to make us good. And so that story has to be heard. That tension is there, certainly in the Jesus story, 
But in a way, it's it's present already in the story in the psalm. And that's perhaps worth further reflection. But mostly in the time I have left, I'd like to comment on the text from the epistles from Philippians. A very familiar text, uh, usually thought of as a, a sort of ancient Christian hymn. Uh, a song that would have been sung in church. Whether Paul composed it or he quoted it, it I, I don't know and I don't think it matters. I don't think there's a way to know. But he quotes this text. <laughs> he sort of drifts into poetry, into doxology, as he does frequently in his letters, actually. He's a, I always think of him as a bit of a frustrated poet, uh, or maybe not so frustrated, because he seems to let the poetry pour out occasionally. But he says... Let this mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus. He writes to the Philippians, this little church in a Roman colony, relatively young Christians, people trying to find their way forward in life. He writes to them sometimes about their conflict, sometimes about his conflicts. And he says, whatever you do, whoever you interact with, let this mind be in you. Paul and this is probably worth saying, Paul doesn't think that if we can just get our emotions all lined up, things will be great. He thinks that it, our mind has to be altered, that we have to change how we think and not just how we feel. That those things actually have to go together. We need both. And part of our changing how we think is about how we interact with other human beings. And he says, let this mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus. If you want to know how to treat others, other people, look at what Christ did. It wasn't just that he was nice to people or that he welcomed people that other people didn't welcome. It, it That's true, but it goes way beyond that. He says, and then he quotes this, this poem, though he was in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited but emptied himself, be taking on the form of a slave, being born in human likeness and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We might describe this story as, as a kind of V-shaped story. Christ is enthroned in splendor with the Father, is Lord of all, but gives all of that up empties himself of that position whatever that means and this it's only a few lines so it does so the church has spent 2000 years trying to figure out what that means without maybe coming to a completely satisfactory conclusion the text doesn't worry so much about all that means it says let's let's just go with the the top line part of the discussion he was in splendor but he descended to this world not as a king, not as a conquering general, not as a triumphant messiah, but as a slave. Well, not literally, right? He was a free free person from a little town called Nazareth, sort of an independent businessman, Joseph. Uh, but, but at the bottom, not quite the bottom, but near the bottom of society. It wasn't the bottom, but you could see it from there. And he, he came in that position. And he might as well have been a slave because on Friday, the Friday that begins with Palm Sunday, uh, he was he was executed 
he was crucified by the Roman authorities as if he were a bandit or a rebel or, or, or guilty of some really heinous crime. He became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. So when we talk about Christ in triumph, we must also talk about Christ on the cross. And when we talk about Christ on the cross, we must talk about Christ in triumph, yes. But we must, we must get the point of the low point of the story, that he descended as far as you can go. He embraced, he took into his own arms all of the human experience, not just the good parts, not just the pretty parts, not just the religious parts, but all the parts, including the most hideous of all, this ignominious death on a cross. God, however, highly exalted him. So the V, up and down and back up again, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth. That, that, that language that goes all the way back to the creation story, right? To Genesis 1 and to the Ten Commandments and all the rest, the, the habitats of the created world, heaven and earth and subterranean worlds. So all, all living things, every knee should bend and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's this sense of universal, universal reconciliation. Because he says, you know, he says to the Romans that whoever confesses with the mouth that Jesus is Lord will be saved. So whether he expects universal salvation, he doesn't quite spell out. I think that is a reasonable conclusion, but not the only possible conclusion from that line. But in any case, whatever happens, the, the forces of evil don't win. And God's triumph is complete. And it's complete not in spite of Good Friday, but because of it. Not in spite of Jesus is entering into our suffering and sharing it with us, but because of it. That's the ultimate good news story. And already today, though it is not yet Easter, and we need to be patient and work through the week and hear the story of the Last Supper and hear the story of the arrest and hear the story of the trial and the execution and the burial. We need to wait and hear all of that and, and absorb all of that and, and feel as well as we can the pain of that, even though all that's true. We know that Easter is coming. Just not quite yet. This has been, as I've remarked earlier, a long season of Lent. I don't mean just the last few weeks, I mean the last several years. It's been a season when uh, things have seemed topsy-turvy and we've had to reorient ourselves in all kinds of ways. We've learned new vocabulary words, we've learned a lot about virology, <laughs> or maybe rightly or wrongly, and, and we've learned a lot about our neighbors and ourselves. Some of it we like and some of it we don't, frankly. But this is an opportunity for us to recommit 
and to seek renewal. I hope you'll stay tuned for the last podcast in this series, the celebration of Easter, in which renewal will be the watchword. Thank you for listening. I look forward to more conversations with you in the future. Preaching in Season is a production of the Graduate School of Theology at Abilene Christian University in partnership with the Center for the Study of Ancient Religious Texts. If you're interested in learning more about us and what we do, visit us at acu.edu gst or email us at gst at acu.edu. Until next time.